Welcome, everybody. Um, I'd like to introduce Venerable Matea from Lumbini, Nepal. And I'm Sister Bodhi, his Dharma mother or spiritual mother. And we're going to start the evening with a meditation that I'll be leading. And then Venerable Matea will give you a Dharma talk for the evening. So if we'd like to get comfortable in our meditation posture, ensuring that our backs are straight, our hands are resting comfortably in our lap, either on our thighs or in meditation posture. And we can gently close our eyes and take a few breaths just to let go of the busyness of the day and the busyness of getting to New York Insight Meditation Center. can begin with a positive motivation for doing the meditation with a thought or wish I'll not do this meditation for myself alone but so that any benefits I gain can be shared with others and then we can bring our attention and awareness to our breath in the area around our nose and just become aware of our breath as it passes a limited area around the tip of our nose, in our nostrils, above our upper lip. And we just breathe naturally and normally without controlling our breath in any way, but just observing it as it is. Once we have an awareness of our breath in this limited area around our nose, we can then try and focus all of our attention and awareness on the entire incoming breath and the entire outgoing breath for breath after breath for as long as you can without forgetting.
try and remain alert and aware for the entire incoming and entire outgoing breath without following any distractions. If your mind gets distracted by a busy thought, noise or feeling, just gently bring your attention back to the breath as soon as you've noticed that it's wandered and begin again without any sense of disappointment. Continue to breathe naturally and normally, observing the entire inhalation and entire exhalation for breath after breath for as long as you can before becoming distracted. And as soon as you've noticed your mind has wandered, bringing your attention back to the breath and beginning again.
Continue to remain alert and aware of each breath in the limited area around the tip of your nose, your nostrils, above your upper lip. Alert and aware for any movement of air coming in or going out in this area. Remain like a watch person, attentive to every movement. Having spent some time observing the breath in this area, you may also have noticed some sensations. Maybe the breath feels warmer or cooler as it comes in or goes out. Perhaps it feels dry or moist. Perhaps you feel other sensations, tickling, itching. Just note these as well, keeping your attention in the limited area around your nose and above your upper lip. Again, if you notice that your mind has wandered, as soon as you've noticed, gently bring your attention back to the breath and begin again, doing this as often as you need to, without any feelings of discouragement or disappointment.
now you can relax your concentration on the breath and just relax, rest peacefully for the next few moments. And when you're ready, you can gently arise from meditation. So, first of all, I would like to welcome everybody and I would like to thank our New York Insight Sangha members for organizing this event and for inviting me here today. About a week ago, I gave a talk at the community meditation center here nearby and I talked about Buddhist concept about death but not to be scared because today I'm not going to talk about death as Buddhist monks in our community we love to talk about death because first of all it scares all the audience and makes them very receptive to whatever you say but today, I'm going to talk about some ideas from the Buddha and from our culture about the art of living. It sounds very theoretical, it sounds very poetic, and in a way it sounds a very broad topic. But it came to my mind after my last visit to here, I actually went to Canada 
I don't know what I was thinking, but I chose to spend the winter there. I live in Nepal, and it's very different climate, very different weather. When we get down to 15 degrees, we say it's very cold. Get down to 10, oh, it's really cold. For the first time, I experienced getting down to minus 30. What does it feel like? But yet, it was very lovely, and I had very wonderful experiences. From childhood, I was born near Lumbini, where Buddha was born, as you might remember. This is a very different kind of climate. We call Lumbini the prairies of Nepal, the plains of Nepal. From there, whenever it rained and the sky was clear, I could see the Himalayas. Nowadays, it's a lot polluted air, but it's still sometimes when it rains for long, and after that, the sky is clear, we can still see the beautiful Himalayan peaks glowing all the way to Lumpini. And from my childhood, I always imagined going to those Himalayas, roaming around, living like a monk, all these romantic ideas. I got so busy with the projects and my responsibilities, and somehow, at the back of my mind, I thought becoming a monk would mean a lot of freedom. But I had no idea that it means also a lot of responsibility. So I never got to go to the Himalayas as I dreamed. But being in Canada for many months, it was like living in the Himalayas, but you can drive. And thinking about drive, I had a wonderful experience there. In Nepal also, I learned to drive. And I would say, when I look from the Canadian perspective, the North American perspective, I was a very reckless driver. Because we don't have any speed limits, we have no rules, no regulations. In fact, we don't even have traffic lights. A freedom, country of freedom. A very deserving country to talk about enlightenment and absolute freedom. And also, being a leader in my community, and perhaps being a monk, I had a lot more freedom and privileges that I shouldn't have, perhaps. I never had to go for a driving lesson. I never had to go and write an exam to get my driving license. In fact, one of my friends talked to the officer, and one day they brought me the driving license right at my home. And without my knowing, I was allowed to drive motorbikes, cars, including big trucks, that I had no idea how they work. And uh, a very kind monk in Lumbini, he had many cars, so he, he lent us his Jeep, a four-wheel drive, and it became our project vehicle. So I was transporting our little nuns and childrens here and there, and I had so much fun. When I went to Canada, my Dharma mother Bodhi Monsi thought that it would help if I would learn to drive there. And I said, oh, why not? It'd be so much fun. And I had no idea what a pain it was. For the first time, I had to go and write an exam about driving. And I thought, well, I'm a monk. I can do anything. And I went. I feel very ashamed to admit I failed the first exam. And more than ashamed, I was actually puzzled. Because for the first time in my life, I failed something like that. And I had no idea how it happened. 
And then I sat down and I realized, well, I surrender. Let me know what I need to do to get this driving permission. And I had to obtain three books and study all the laws and rules and regulations. And I had no idea how complicated driving is. I thought it was easy as a breeze. And luckily, second time, I did manage to pass the exam, got a driving license. But it made me wonder, because I had to study hundreds of rules. And I was actually surprised that how careful we are in the North American society about such simple thing as driving. And up to what length our government, our administration goes to ensure that we know how to do it properly so that we do not endanger our lives and the lives of other people. And at the end, I was quite humbled and very inspired. I thought, what a wonderful community to consider all the aspects of it and prepare for it. I thought it was a wonderful community. So next time I went back to Lumbini, gave up my old driving license. I talked to my friend and I said, no, I have to get a driving license. And they said, what do you mean? You already have the driving license. I said, no, I mean a real driving license. They went to Lens to convince me that that was actually a real driving license signed, in, signed by the chief of the uh, traffic police himself. And said, no, no, I have to write the exam. So I actually insisted. It was quite funny. I went to give tests and actually managed to pass the exam. But later on, I started wondering, such a simple aspect of our life, like driving, we care about it so much. And yet, when it comes to our lives, when, we, when it comes to driving the vehicle of our life in samsara, while trying to navigate ourselves through this vast maze of life, while trying to live in this world, because in East, we call life as a journey. Actually, in our local language, the language is spoken around Lumbini, Life, there is a synonym of life that exactly means traveling, a journey. So journey and life, they are very similar words in our culture. So from that perspective, I started wondering that when it comes to learning the skills of traveling well, traveling well this human life, we don't have anything at all. In fact, we don't even think of it in such a way. And I realized that the roads in the world, the samsaric roads, at least they have a fixed pole. They have north and south. You pick a right street, you will reach at the right destination. You know where to turn, you know when to wait for the green light, and you go ahead. But when we look at life, the roads in life, they are very puzzling. For, for a while, you may think you were heading south, and you don't realize when it had changed and gone completely different direction altogether. In fact, in life, we don't know when to stop, when to go. There are no clues, no signs, no fixed path. And very often, we run into each other, we bump into each other. There is no fixed guidance. So the idea came to my mind 
that if we care so much about, for example, driving, etc., why don't we prepare? Similarly, about the idea of how to live our life. And when I started thinking about it more deeply, and I realized that that was something that had been very vital part of my culture, our Asian, or I would say, the oriental way of living. From the very childhood, we were always taught, we were mentored how to live life. Not just to be honest, good person, etc., but many other teachings that were very helpful. So today we are going to learn the Buddhist driving, a little bit of it. But this is a very beginner concept. So far there has been no rules, nothing has been formulated about it yet. So we have the freedom being pioneers, we might introduce new ideas today here. First of all, in our culture, we say that to learn to live the life, you have to learn from the trees. When I was a child, I never understood it, and I quite struggled with it. I was born in a very controlled family, being born as a Brahmin, and Brahmins in India, they're very a spiritual, a scholastic family, and they have this idea that they are on the highest strata of the society. So my grandfather, he was very authoritarian, and he had a very systematic path what we should do and what we shouldn't do. One of the things was that when I was in primary school, after the school, we had no free time. We were not allowed to come home, drop our bags, and go to run around. When we came home, we had one hour to have breakfast, relax a little bit, and then we would have to start working in our family garden. And he made us work two hours every day, even on Saturdays, even when we did not have to go to school. As a result, we had a very large family garden, beautiful trees, and we had more than enough food, more than enough vegetables that we could ever eat. So we were carrying and giving it to our neighbors and everything. And I complained for almost five, six years. As a child, I always wanted to go and explore and see the birds, see so many wonderful things. And I never understood. But my grandfather always used to say, no, this is a very important part of life, that you learn to spend time with the trees, you learn to take care, you learn to work hard, and you learn to be punctual and regular meant nothing to a child mind. And then he used to tell me this story that we often hear in, it, in our childhood very often. They always say that you should live life like a tree. A tree grows in two ways. When you see a tree growing from five foot to 10 feet, it not only grows upward, but it also grows downwards. It puts its roots deeper. It goes deeper into the earth. In fact, if you look at a 100 feet tall tree, 80 feet tall tree, you can imagine that its roots are so deep so that they can, they can withheld, they can stand up to the pressure of air, they can balance their weight. So similarly, 
we are taught that when you live your life, you should learn to grow deeper. You should not only grow in age, and you should not only mature in body, but you should also mature in wisdom. And it was the duty of my grandfather, as he explained very much, my father, my grandmother, everyone, to try and help us to put our roots deeper into the way of life. And I struggled quite a bit because I did not understand what was it about. It took me a few years and later on I began to understand how important it is. And when I look at it now from the Buddha's perspective, I think Buddha very much meant it. We don't really understand Buddha fully yet. We know that there are so many Buddhist centers, Dharma centers around the world nowadays, a lot of wonderful teachers, a lot of people practicing meditation, etc. But from the Buddhist perspective, it's all quite new. It's all in very juvenile stage. Because up until 50 years ago, there were professors teaching in European universities that Buddha is just a myth, just a legend that he does not really exist, that he was not born as a person. So all of this new growth, new development in the Buddhist world has happened since last 50 years around the world. And yet the, this new regeneration, new propagation of Buddhist meditation, Buddhist insight, Buddhist studies in the world is quite new. We have learned about meditation techniques, and I think it's very precious, very important part of Buddhist teaching. But yet, there is so much that we still have to discover about Buddha as a person, how he really was. Because sometimes to understand a teaching from a person, you have to understand from which point of reference this person is speaking from. So you have to understand the Buddha as a person. And this was my emphasis when I was studying. I wanted to understand Buddha because I was taught he was born right in my village. So he was a person to me. He was someone whom I can chart in my history, whom I could say, well, he was born roughly about 30 generations ago in our own society. So my emphasis was to try and understand Buddha as a person. And when you look at him, it changes our views. It changes even the way we understand Buddhist teachings. Because when we look from the surface nowadays, our emphasis is that Buddhism is a path taught by the Buddha, and we learn to practice bit by bit. We grow in merits, we grow in understanding, we grow in our knowledge. And eventually, slowly and slowly, slowly and slowly, someday we will reach to the end of it. We'll become enlightened. We would consider ourselves very lucky if we became enlightened at the end of this very life. This is the normal understanding of Buddhism. We understand that Buddhism is, the enlightenment is actually like the end of all things. You just reach enlightenment and there is nothing afterwards. But when you look at it from the Buddhist perspective, perspective as a Buddha, as a human being, then it changes. Because for Buddha, enlightenment was not the end of all things. In fact, for him, it was the beginning of everything that he was. A beautiful teaching from the Buddha, he says, I started to live my life the day I became enlightened. That's why the word he used, he calls it bodhi. It means awakening, rising from the sleep. 
What do you do when you wake up in the morning? You begin your life. You, you do whatever you have to do throughout the day. And in fact, Buddha lived for 45 years as an enlightened person. And he taught wonderful many people. And he was not giving talks like this all the time. He was spending time with children. He was talking with the community people. And as a child, as a young scholar, I myself was very curious to understand how Buddha taught the children. So I even in those days, I remember I created a profile of young people whom Buddha had met. Because for me, it was something that I could relate to. And I was very inspired that when Buddha taught these young people, for example, like his own son, Rahula, he taught very differently. When he taught young novice Pandita, he taught very differently. Because he saw the potential in these people that they have 50 years, 80 years of their life to live. And he felt very at ease to teach them the way they should live as a proper human being. And those teachings are very different. He does not talk about nirvana and anything else. But he talks about very small fundamental things, very simple things. He taught them how to live life well, how to learn the art of living. And it changed my perspective of Buddha. Before, I was a little bit resentful towards him because I learned he gave up his family, he gave, gave up his young-born child, he denied him fatherhood, he left home. Poor young boy, he never even got to meet his father. So I thought at my mind that Buddha must have been a great teacher, that's why the world loves him, but he was a very bad parent. But it changed my mind that yet, even after becoming enlightened, even after becoming such a leader of so many people around him, yet he has this compassionate heart that he teaches them the skills they will need to live their life. So in fact, Buddhism is not about the end of the journey, but the beginning of it. So we should really think about it, that enlightenment is not a very distant idea. It's not someday you become enlightened and everything is finished, everything is done, then you're free from everything else. And then you should try everything beforehand. It doesn't work like that. In fact, the enlightenment is that you gain an insight in the way of life, in the reality of things as they are, and you grow into them. You mature into them, and you live your life in that clarity, in that light, in that understanding that shines forth from the enlightened state of mind. And this was the Buddha's attitude. So I think we wouldn't go very far if we tried to say that Buddha in fact tried to teach us the art of living, how to live properly, what are the principles of life, That's w that we should not only grow, and here I would, I would definitely like to quote certain words that come directly from the Buddha, but they would sound very unpleasant, so I'm going to skip it over. But Buddha is very direct. He says that there are many people who grow in flesh and in age and in power, and they think they have grown up. Buddha calls them bala. Bala means monkey or foolish. He says these people have not learned the value of life. They are not really growing up. It's just their muscles are growing, their body is growing, their age is growing, but they are not moving anywhere. There is still the little child in their mind. They cry when they lose something. They become so delighted when they find something. Just child is in their mind. 
I did not understand, but it took me many years. And when I began to learn more about the society, I was surprised to see how it felt very rude when I was reading those words from the Buddha. But later on, I realized how clear Buddha was when he said it. I remember, as I explained to you earlier, that in my childhood, I did not have much freedom to go around with my friends or go and explore things on my own. At that time, I resented it quite a bit. But now when I look at it, I feel grateful about it in many ways. I can just imagine many naughty things I might have done with my freedom, chasing birds, going around, or I can just imagine all the things. But when I was deprived from it, then I took any little opportunity that was available to me to have conversation with people, to go and visit somewhere. So one excuse for me to visit my society, get to explore my village a little bit was that my grandmother, she was the chief of the family, so every day when she's done from her work, etc., when she's free in the afternoon, she usually would walk to neighbors' homes, sometimes other part of the village, to meet other grandmothers and have a chit-chat and they talk about things. So I would accompany her. I would walk with her and it was so much fun. And my family let me because my grandmother was there, so somebody was there to watch me. And well, I said, well, I will settle for this. I will come. At least I have opportunity to meet other people. And I remember going to meet other old grandmothers and having to sit there and listen to their conversation, their little chats, and you have no idea how funny they talk. Especially Nepali grandmothers, they have such funny stories, funny perspective on life altogether. And they laugh and giggle, even without teeth. And they don't mind at all. <laughs> they don't mind that you can see their gums or anything. Nothing. They're so happy about it. And I started watching it. And eventually, slowly, after we visited many times, I, became, I began to become their friends. Many of them, I started to know about them. I would think about them in the school. And when my grandma wouldn't be able to pay them visit regularly, sometimes I would remind her, shall we go and visit that particular lady? And she would smile and say, well, is he my friend or your friend? Slowly, I began to make friends with old people in my village, especially with grandmothers and slowly with grandfathers. And it's a Nepali community. In Nepali society, we never call anybody by their name. Because name is very egoistic thing, very personal thing. Name is not who you are. But in our society, what we believe is that what role do you play, that's what you are. If you have given birth to your mother, then you are a mother. And everybody will address you a mother. Or your neighbors will not call you by your name, but will call you, oh, his mother or her mother. They call you by what you are, what, what your role in the society is. So we never call elderly people by their name. Any elderly person will just talk to them as grandmother or grandfather. So sometimes it's very confusing to tell which one I'm talking about. Am I talking about my grandmother or her friend? But still it's very enjoyable. So slowly I became friend with most of the elderly people in my village. And sometimes when my grandmother was tired, I started paying visit on my own. Sometimes you would say, well, take this thing and give it to her. And I said, well, why not? So I would go, and normally what would take five minutes to deliver this took two hours because we started chatting and we started talking. 
And I found it very interesting because these were 80-year-old people, 60-year-old people who had lived their life in my own village and who knew so much about my place. I remember one lady telling me that how 20 years ago she saw a leopard come and walk into her house. And I could just imagine, wow, leopard in this village right here? So it opened so many doors to me, so many stories. And I began, I began to become their friend. And at the same time, I was born in such a family where there was a lot of spirituality happening. My father was a Vedantist, a special form of Hindu practice where they're very philosophical and they stay in family, they marry, but they also study and practice but very responsible about society and community. And ironically, my uncle, one of my father's young brother, he was a yogi, Hindu yogi, who had long matted hair and he smoked marijuana and wandered throughout India. And once a year he would come and bring about 10, 15 yogis from the Himalayas who were totally opposite of what my father is. They have no responsibility, nothing, just wander around and have fun and have good time. So quite a contrast. And my grandmother was sort of neutral. She was the follower of the path of devotion. You, you don't worry about anything. You just have a good heart and you have faith in the good dharma and then you don't worry about things. So it gave me a lot of perspective on life. And I was quite confused because I liked the rationality of my father, how rational he was and how clear he was and how responsible he was. And I was inspired. I wanted to be a social worker just like him. And yet, I was fascinated by my uncle's freedom, the sense of aloofness, sense of whatever goes in the world, doesn't matter. He can still remain happy. I was so fascinated with it. Not so much fascinated by their marijuana smells, but fascinated with this sense of aloofness, sense of remaining free from all the worries and tension and everything. And it felt so childlike, so I could connect with something. But yet I was divided, whom to choose, what, what is the way to live? And out of this confusion, I began to study a lot about religion, spirituality. And to do that, I studied all that we had in our family. I studied the Vedas, Bhagavad Gita's. And then what fascinated me so much was I began to study the life of these brilliant yogis, masters that we have in our society. And it was a very devoted family, so I had a lot of such books. And I started begin to try and study about these people. Try to see them as someone who was on my stage. At one particular time, they were young children, and what kind of path they chose to live, and what was the outcome. And I began to question about it, and begin to think about it. And then in my regular visit to meet these grandmothers and grandfathers, I started to ask them, what do you think about your life? You are 80 year age. I cannot go back and ask this saint that I read about him, that is he happy, the way he lived his life? Because I had a very suspicious mind. So in India, any saint that dies, you venerate him, you write wonderful books about them, even if they had some bad habit, you don't talk about it. They are holy beings, you don't say anything. So I had a lot of suspicion. I said, maybe they're not happy about the past they choose, but yet people said they were happy. So I cannot meet to confirm them. I cannot ask them to tell me what they feel about it. Were they happy? But these people are around. I can ask them what they feel about the end of their life, the particular way they choose to live. And at that time, I remember roughly, I knew about 40, 46 elderly people. It was a large village with 600 houses. So knowing 46 is not a big, big deal there. And so I would go and ask, and I had lots of discussions. 
And I started to wonder later on, when I came in contact with the Dharma, and especially in our community, you learn a lot about death. Because death is like a, uh, a strike on the head to help you awaken. And when you learn this life is not forever, this is a small period of time, and it decides a lot. It means a lot the way you live, the way you will evolve. So one becomes very conscious of this time. So we were taught about death from very childhood, so I was very conscious of it. So I remember that one of the time I asked one elderly lady, we were having conversation, I said, well, how old are you? And she was roughly about 80, 82 year old. They don't know exactly how old they are. No, nobody knows in Nepal. We don't celebrate birthdays. <laughs> and so we were having a nice chat. I asked, are you happy what you have done? And she had no idea if she's happy or not, but she said, this is how I lived. And I was married at young age and I have children. I, got, I married my daughters and children and they have grandchildren, so it's all okay. And I was having a conversation and talking about it. And I asked this particular lady that 80, 82 years of age and you lived so well, are you ready to face your death? And I remember the shock on her face. This is in a Nepali society where we talk a lot about death. It's just not shock. But yet when it came very personal to her, her face was frozen. I felt very bad about asking it. But that's the way I was raised. So I asked, are you comfortable with it or not? You know you have to die. <laughs> I felt very rude about it now. And uh, she couldn't speak anything. She said, well, and I felt that she has become very uncomfortable. And later on, I regretted about it. But that evening, I thought a lot about it. And I felt, look at these people. They have lived 80, 82 years of age. And yet, they're not ready even to face this truth of their life, that they will have to die. They're not comfortable with it. They don't have any idea about it. This will ever happen. They had no preparation whatsoever. And yet, on the contrary, I read the life of these yogis and other so many people. And yet, I met so many of my uncle's friends who are ready to die any moment. You talk about death, ah, it's just fine. It's all okay. We know what will happen. And such a confidence. These people met death with such a confidence. So I begin to wonder, a person who has lived 80, 82 years of age, done so much in life, yet has not gained anything out of that, anything so substantial that one is ready to face what will happen to her. Because it's very personal. Death is very personal and very intimate. It happens to any of us. Sorry, I earlier promised that I will not talk about death in Gore subjects, so I will try and keep it brief and go more towards the life. But the funny thing is that the death and life are like the two sides of a coin. They are so joined and they actually define each other. We wouldn't think about life in such a way if there was no death. So I guess I will have to talk about it a little bit. So the thing is that death is so personal that only one, only the same person whom the death is happening can describe about it, can feel what is happening. So even if somebody's around and wants to help you, wants to give you advice, cannot because he has no idea what you're experiencing totally. So one should be prepared because it's very personal and it's going to happen to everybody. And you should at least, if you've given so much in life, you've sacrificed so much, you've done so much wonderful things, you should get at least a little bit of personal benefit, a little bit of personal growth so that you're comfortable with this very personal thing that, that you have to go through at some point in the, our lives. So I felt very sad about these old ladies in our village 
that they had given so much to their family, to the society, and lived such a humble life, and yet they haven't grown much. And yet, on the contrary, there were these yogis and other people who have dealt with this question, practiced hard, and they are confident. They're only 40 years old, and they're so confident about it. And that opened my mind. I began to understand these words that I had read from the Buddha earlier, that there are people who grow in flesh and body, and they don't grow in mind and wisdom. This is very scary part. This is not a proper growth. This is not a proper knowledge awakening. So begin to understand that, oh, what our culture teaches is that learn to live your life from the tree, that you grow both ways, that you not only grow your trunk, your body, your status, your certificates, your job and position in the society, but yeah, also you put your roots down, that you also grow in the principles of life, in the principles of reality, what we call dharma, that you understand the way things are and you become a matured person. And what I find is that it helps whatever we are doing on the surface. If we become a parent, a mother, a father, it helps if we understand the life a little bit. Sometimes when I meet families and being a, a monk, I get to have a different perspective on married people that I don't think married people get to have that kind. Very often I meet, and especially in my society, many people come to ask me questions. And sometimes I find that parents come with the children. Children have their own unique problems, but the parents, they have similar problems. Just different color, different coding. And I find they are not two people, one father and one child, but they are two children. They are both on the same stage. One just has this different body and different outlook, etc. But inside they are just children. It's, it's very funny to take a look at it. Now, if we talk about what is this so-called the principles of life, how do we grow our roots? How do we go stronger so that we have a stronger base in life? So that if the wind is come, if weather changes, we can sustain ourselves. We can stand all the challenges that comes to, to our life. Buddha very often quoted the life as the weather. As the weather changes very often, suddenly it becomes the hottest day in New York, and then temperature starts going down. It changes very frequently. Similarly in life too, many things change. And the funny thing is, not only other things change, but our minds change too. Suddenly we have so much energy that we can visit a New York museum five hours a day and then go for a party in the evening. And suddenly after a few years we realize, well, we can go for two, three hours and it becomes so tired. We go home, all we want to do is turn on the TV, lie down there. So things change. Our body changes. But more than that, even the mind changes. People change. Oh, so much is changing outside. So just like a strong tree that needs to sustain itself in winter, enjoy the summer, one needs a good root, a lot of soil, very enriching fertilized soil. Similarly, for a person to remain strong while facing the changing weather all around us, this emotional, psychological, social weather. Nowadays in America we talk about financial weather too. I heard a lot about Occupy the Wall Street and all that. So I think even there is a new kind of weather here, financial weather. And the funny thing is, just like any other things, it also changes. So while going through all the changes in our life, how to stand firm? 
how to face all of that and survive the next season, how to remain replenished, how to remain sustained inside. For that, Buddha says, take a deep, deep look at the way things work so that you become prepared, you understand the inner dynamics and the outer change around you and how it influences. So this is where the Buddha's teachings come in handy. Not as a religion, not as a promise of enlightenment and saving us from all these hellish descriptions that we find in other scriptures, etc. Nothing doing like that. Buddha's teachings are very much about how to live this very life. And the funny thing is, if we can live this very life in proper way, as the nature sort of prepared and intended, then enlightenment, even such an impossible task, becomes just a simple thing. It becomes like a tree that has lived very well, put its roots very down, accumulated a lot of energy for the tree to bloom, to flower, to give fruits, it's very simple because it has already prepared. So similarly for a well-lived life, for a well-sustained energy of life to become enlightened, to experience illuminated stage of mind, is very easy. In fact, when you read about enlightenment, being a monk is kind of personally challenging because in Asian community, if you become a monk, if you put a robe, you become suddenly a very highly revered person, person of a high status and everything. They don't know all your inner struggles, but they respect and love you. But the thing is, there is a big promise looming over your head. That is that you have to become enlightened someday. So all, your, all the respect and love you're getting from people is based on one single promise that one day you have to become enlightened. So sometimes some, some of us, we really think about it seriously. That's a big payback and I have to return it someday. So how do I become enlightened? Very scary when it is very personal. When I was reading at earlier stages when I started to study with my teacher, wonderful nun, I became very aware about it. I'm very scared too because he was always trying to convince me to become a monk. And I knew if I say yes to become a monk, I should have a confidence that, okay, one day I can become enlightened, I can work it out. So those days I was studying a lot. When I tried to study about, and as I told you earlier, I was trying to understand Buddha as a person, so I was very much into his daily life, what he had gone through 2,500 years ago, why did he, whenever I would read this teaching, and it was a big headache for my teacher, because whenever she would teach me this particular sutra or particular teaching from the Buddha, I would say, well, okay, I, I know it. Now tell me why Buddha said it, to whom he said it, and what is the history of that person, where he came from, and what happened to him in coming years? What was the change? And it was poor, my poor teachers, he had to go through so much trouble. Just to teach me 14 pages, it would take her a few months, because every time there is this new offshoot, new story coming out of it. So on those days I was very much focused on the lives of these enlightened monks and nuns who became enlightened. And I was very much trying hard to understand how they became enlightened. Oh, what a relief when I found that most of them, majority of those people, they became enlightened when they were not really struggling with it, when they were not fighting over it. They had done all their practices, they had grown into knowledge, understanding, wisdom, and a good heart. They had all this good harmonious energy accumulated. In fact, one of the most beloved characters in the Buddhist community at that time, Venerable Ananda, a very personal favorite of mine in many ways, 
He became enlightened when he was going to lie down and sleep on the bed. That's the laziest thing anyone can imagine that one can do to go become enlightened. But yet it worked because Venerable Ananda, he was a very different kind of person. And I would advise any Dharma student and anyone to study him as a person. He lived with Buddha for many, many years and yet he was never enlightened. It was very strange. And I'm so glad, I was so grateful to him that he never became enlightened while Buddha was alive. Because when you become enlightened, a lot of fun is over. And an unenlightened mind is so much fun. Because sometimes there's these innocent questions, innocent questions so that you have no idea, and in no way an enlightened person could speak about it. But an unenlightened mind, oh, there are so many curiosities, so many wonders, so it helps us a lot. So Buddha says how to grow into this way of life. That by growing naturally in the way of living, learning the art of living in our life, we can grow in such a way that even impossible looking goals like enlightenment can be experienced here and now. To do that, Buddha's teaching is actually based all around it, how to live life in such a way. As most of you, you are Dharma practitioners. You've been practicing meditation, taking time to come to Dharma talks and studying. I believe that you have a lot of practice, a lot of understanding, contemplation, thinking on your part already. So I will not go back to reviewing all those things. And in fact, they are long. There is a long list. In fact, Buddha, when I was learning, I was taught that he gave 84,000 set of teachings. I can just imagine how he managed to keep track of that and how many hours it took for him to teach. So I will spare your burden. I will not go through reviewing all those 84,000 teachings here. I will leave this joyful task to you. <laughs> but um, today I would like to present a small analogy and something what I liked about Buddha. Because even when Buddha expounded this very vast, complex set of teachings of 84,000 teachings, but yet, his presentation was something very simple, and it touched my heart. When I was young, one of the hobby I had, the secret hobby, was watching birds, watching these lizards and insects and everything, and my uncles thought I was a little weird. But it was so much fun, actually, doing all this. But very soon, I became puzzled, because I was trying to keep track of so many diversity of life around us so many different kind of birds. And I wondered, are they related with each other? What is happening here? It was almost impossible to keep track of so many birds, so many insects and animals that I started seeing around. And perhaps I was quite young, so it was challenging to remember all that. In grade six, I think it was grade six, when I came to learn science. We don't start studying science at early ages. We are spared from that burden. We say, no, no, have fun, play around. You will study about science when you grow up a little bit. So in grade six, I think, we started to study science. I began a little bit about it in grade three and four, but let me just talk about it. In grade six, when I started learning, one of the first chapter in science was that it was the classification of life. One small page, a beautiful tree was drafted there and said, divided that all life form can be divided in plant kingdom, animal kingdom, and animal kingdom can be divided in cold-blooded, hot-blooded, invertebrated, etc. And I was so amazed by this classification of life. 
this brilliant work of the scientists, because in one page I could trace entire diversity of life. I said, well, I can have this piece of page and I can put everything in its place. What a wonderful idea. I became so happy. Similarly, when I was learning about Buddhism, and having gone through the experience of being a Hindu and trying to grasp the vast Vedas and Upanishads and this diversity of so many weird-looking teachings there, millions and millions of Hindu deities and gods, it was a hard time for me. And I thought, well, I don't want to do that again with Buddhism. So when I came to learn from Buddha, one of the first teachings I liked about him was that Buddha was very analytical about his teachings. In fact, he used the scientific method of classification, classifying, and he picked up human being. He said, well, let's see how a human being works. And he says, how can we divide and classify human being? How can we analyze? So he said, every human being can be analyzed in two aspects, the mind and matter, or simply mind and body, nama and rupa, very ancient words from Buddha. Rupa is this material body, so he classifies them in two aspects. He says, Rupa is this material form. What is Rupa made of? He said, this is made of all different kind of elements, and he stops there. So Buddha, in a way, is just giving us a general understanding about what is matter, and he leaves it there. Instead, he chooses this new path. He picks up what is Nama, what is mind. And for the first time, 2,500 years ago, he tried to analyze the mind. He tried to divide it. And it says, every human being's mind is divided in four parts. First part of mind, he calls it Vedana, sensation. Second part of mind, he calls it Sanya, perception, recognition, cognition. Third part of mind, he calls it Sankhara, previous conditioning, reactive pattern in the mind, habitual patterns, habitual conditioning. And the fourth part of mind, he calls it consciousness, the vinyana. And why we are talking about it here is because in order to understand how to live life so that our roots go deeper, we become stronger, first of all, we have to understand the reality that we are, that everything around us is. So Buddha says that these four parts of mind, they actually make up our mind. So for the first time, I was surprised that mind is not here. And it's not just one thing, it's made up so many aspects. So to understand that, Buddha gave an analogy, he says, for example, you can imagine you hear a sound coming from the Ishi machine. So he called Ishi machine the object of sound. He actually used that word. That it gives sound. And he says that sound travels to the sense door of sound. So he, ears, he called it sense door, receptors for sound, in a way. And to surprise my mind, at that time I learned the word he used. He says, when the sound travels from the sound object, meets the sound door, receptors of sound, there is contact. There is actual contact between the sound and our consciousness, these receptors. We use the word fascia. And at the same time, I was studying science, so I knew the sound waves travel and touch us. And it seemed very invasive to me. Well, we are touched by all these things. Anybody comes and says anything, he's actually touching us. Oh, that sounds very interesting <laughs> to a childhood mind. And when Buddha said that, I said, wow, what a beautiful thing. We are learning it as a modern knowledge. And yet, 2,500 years ago, Buddha had this insight. 
He says, so what happens is that when there is a touch of the sound on the sound consciousness, sound door that we have, there is sensation, Vedana happens. But we feel something there. Some sensation takes place. And as soon as the sensation takes place, then the second part of mind, known as perception, recognition happens. It says, well, what is happening? Oh, I'm feeling something. What is it? And then its job is that it tries to remember what it is it and tries to listen. And does it sound like a motor running? No. Oh, it sounds like the AC running. Oh, yes, it is AC. So it cognizes it. It evaluates it and gives name and level. It just says, okay, this is what it is. And also, it recognizes whether we like it or we don't like it. Sort of perceives it for us. It decides if it is pleasant, if it is bearable, if it is okay, or we can ignore it or not, and then makes a decision. So when it gives a name and label, cognizes it as it is, as pleasure and neutral, whatever, then this third part of mind becomes activated. The habitual pattern, the way we have reacted before, the habit of reacting with things. For example, if the cognitive part decided is unpleasant, then how do we react? So this third part of mind, known as Sankara conditioning, what it does, it, it starts reacting based on the evaluation given from the perception. For example, if it was very annoying to us, and we just don't like it, then we become very tense. Suddenly something starts happening to us, our breathing becomes abnormal, our part of mind becomes a little bit imbalanced, a little bit unconcentrated. And this fourth part of mind, consciousness somewhat remains buried underneath it. The chain of sensation, perception, and reaction, they become so automatic. They almost take over. The consciousness remains buried. And it happens all the time. For example, if we go to bed, I don't know in New York we have mosquitoes or not. So far I haven't met a mosquito. But in Lumbini, oh, they're wonderful friends to have all around. Because that's the only way you can be in peace with them, because they're everywhere. So we try and imagine them as friends. Horrible friends, but... <laughs> <laughs> so, and this is a unique tool a Buddhist monk has, that we are taught that if you can change something, you can be happy with it, do it. If you cannot, change your mind about it, change your perception, be happy with it. So we, we try and choose whatever is possible. So for example, a mosquito gets in your house somehow and you're sleeping on your bed, so happy, dreaming in the thoughts, and it bites you. You are totally asleep, you have no idea, but you will react to it. You will kill it or you will just scratch, scratch it. And in the morning somebody asks you, what were you doing? I don't know, I was just sleeping. Oh, mosquito is a very small example. Many people I heard, they even sleepwalk. They reach to subways, maybe, and don't realize. They're genius people in many ways, I would say. <laughs> but this sense of feeling some sensation, perception of it is as unpleasant, and reaction is happening constantly, even while we're consciously asleep. We, we don't know. We have no recollection. It happens all the time. And Buddha says, this is how life revolves. It may not sound scary, it may not sound, what is wrong with it? If it is this way, good, good. But I'll give you another analogy, another, let's imagine a scenario, and it will help us to understand what it really means. 
So here I need your help and participation. Let's imagine that there is this, suddenly the New York City turned into a valley, because I'm from Nepal and we have a lot of valleys, a lot of beautiful mountains. So we can imagine that the New York City has become a valley, beautiful valley with Himalayas surrounding it, beautiful mountains, lights glowing everywhere. And the whole way of ruling had changed suddenly, let's say. Let's say that there is a king of the New York City now. And the king happens to live on the Wall Street, but the map of the Wall Street is very changed. Instead of a narrow uh, street there, there is this huge pavilion where people are not allowed to go. And at the end of this huge pavilion, there is this huge, huge medieval castle, many story high, very high. And on top of that, there is this huge, huge hall. Huge, ornate, beautiful Italian marble, but empty, no one there. And at the center of the hall, there is this huge golden throne. And on top of that throne, there is this king sitting with a big crown. And he's the ruler of New York City, living on the Wall Street. And he's a very proud king, sort of like an emperor. And it so happens that he never leaves the palace. He, in fact, never leaves his, his throne. He's always sitting there. And he has five attendants around him. Two guards posted on this side windows, two guards posted on this side windows, and one posted on the door to watch so that nobody comes in, and one private assistant, a secretary who sits by him all the time, 24 hours. I don't know how they manage, but somehow it happens. It's just imagination. <laughs> so he sits by him all the time. And this king has never left this palace. He's the chief ruler and he sits on this high pedestal. And from time to time, he hears sounds coming from the street. He hears something happening in the city. So he asks the personal attendant, what is it? And he says, well, wait a minute. So he asks the guard on the window. He takes a look outside and he comes and narrates this to the private secretary, not even directly to the, the emperor, but the private secretary. And the private secretary takes a note of it finds the right words to address to him and relays information to him in a very nice, humble way. Your Majesty, maybe, something like this. And this is the only way the king manages the relationship with the outer world. This is the only way he receives information whenever he has to say something, dictate something to the outside world. He tells it to his private secretary and they tell it to the guards and guards tell it outside. You can imagine that this is the only way he has lived. And then one day this private secretary thinks something. He says, well, this fellow is the laziest king ever. He, in fact, does nothing. He sits there on the throne and it's me who is running all his business. I'm doing everything for him. And he changes his mind. He says, this is the laziest fellow. Who bothers about him? So he starts ordering things his own way and just narrates the way the king likes so that he just stays happy and he stays content sitting on the throne. He knows he will never get down this throne and go and check things on his own. So he tries to take over the kingdom. He starts running things on his own way, creates a lot of chaos, but he doesn't bother. We can imagine this horrible situation this poor emperor can be if he doesn't change himself, if he doesn't walk outside this palace and see what is happening. 
if he just relies on this private secretary and the private secretary becomes a bad person, how vulnerable this king is, how easily he can be mismanaged. In fact, he has become like a prisoner of his own castle. So I will leave you to contemplate this scenario a little bit. Buddha says that this sounds a strange story, that in fact, if we take a look at ourselves, each of us, every one of us is that prisoner of the castle. We are the prisoner of our own castle that we have built around us. Because if we look at the mind, this is the way we work. Ourselves, we position ourselves on this big throne that everybody has built in our mind on this high pedestal of ego. And every information we hear about the world, every, every knowledge we get from outside world, come through our sense doors. Sense door of eye, ears, nose, tongue, tangible, tangibility, touch. And all of this information, all these sources of information that we retain, passes through the mind, the private security that we have, the assistant of every one of us. And this mind is very smart secretary that each of us have. And in fact, we had it from the very moment we were born. So it knows all our groups. It knows that we'll never, get, we'll never let go of our comfort of enjoying this high pedestal and being served. So it fools us all the time. What it says, in fact, everyone's mind makes us do whatever we want to do. We are the prisoner of this kashal. I was very startled. About three years ago, I learned scientific research. I don't remember the name of the people or what it was, but I remember what it was about. And it particularly touched my mind because by then I had become a coffee drinker. In Nepal, I used to drink Nescafe. And I was so happy about it. And when I met my Dharma mother, I wanted to be educated about the Western way of life so that I could understand a little bit. And one of the things I learned was this magic of the Starbucks. <laughs> and I, for the first time, I met real coffee. And after that, we started calling Nescafe with some other name that I wouldn't call here. But I said, oh, was I drinking this before? <laughs> And so after a year or two, I realized that I had become sort of a little bit, a little bit. When I have the coffee, I feel so nice. When I don't have it, mmm, there's a headache. So I said, oh, this is really bad for a monk. This is a form of addiction. So I was just struggling with it. And then I learned about this research conducted by some scientific community. And they said, very funny research, they said that when you decide about something, and they go to this particular thing, the coffee, when you make a decision, conscious decision that you want to go and have a cup of coffee, it so happens that your mind, just a few seconds beforehand, three to ten seconds before your mind makes a decision, your subconscious mind tells you, it's time you should have coffee. And then about a few seconds later, you realize, well, yeah, I should go for a cup of coffee. And you live this, in this illusion that it's you who is going for a cup of coffee and paying and treating yourself with a nice cup of coffee. You have no idea it's your private secretary actually ordering you one. And I was horrified. 
it was very cruel of them to coat coffee because it was such a <laughs> pleasurable thing. <laughs> but it shows that how our mind rotates us. Coffee is not bad, we can deal with it. But the mind becomes addicted to so many things and becomes addicted to so many strange things that serve us no good. In fact, when you talk about addiction, a couple of days ago I came here and the tricycle magazine, they wanted to ask me to talk a few words about addiction. And I started thinking about it. So generally when we think about addiction, we only talk about alcohol or substance abuse and things. But in Buddhism, we have a different outlook on it. You can become addicted to so many things. Worst, you can become addicted to pain and misery. Very strange. In Buddhism, it looks like when we talk about, we say, first noble truth. So we are actually talking about truth and we promote the understanding of pain and suffering. But from inside, what we call inner teachings, the inner dynamics of Buddhism, we look at it as one form of addiction. They can become so addicted in pain and suffering. And that's how you create it again and again. Very works. One can become addicted to always looking at oneself in bad way. It can become a habit. But, oh, I'm a really bad person. Oh, I'm incompetent. I can't do this. I can't handle it. I'm a weak person. You might be doing everything good in your life and suddenly something goes wrong and goes wrong in so many people's life because this is the way of samsara. Suddenly this part of mind raises his head and says, well, look at you. See, you're a bad person. You are incompetent. Mind has become addicted to it because the moment it does, it sends you in this automatic reaction to it. It makes you sad, you become overtaken with it. Oh, mind enjoys playing these games in us. The Buddha says, learn yourself, learn the reality of life, how it works. Most important, we can learn about weather, we can predict when it will get warm, when it will get cold. It's nice if some weather person, weather station radio can predict us exactly what will happen two days later. It's good. We can prepare, we can pack all our gears to go on the beach or wherever. But it's so important if we could understand the inner weather of our mind changing. If we could understand how this is going to affect me. And maybe we could plan a little better. Then maybe we could be so sure that next day I'm going to feel like this, that I'm, my mind is not going to change. So Buddha says, understand the way the life works. Grow in this understanding. Develop awareness about it. Contemplate about how your mind works. And begin to check for yourself whether is it really true. Is it really the way it is working, very often you will find, and this is a core teaching of many wonderful Buddhist teachers, they will always try and teach you this understanding that your mind is not you, it's your assistant. It's a part of you, very helpful, very important part of you, that you have built up yourself from your experience, from your learning, etc. You have made him smart, but yet now he has become the boss of the house. He runs you, he takes care of you, he makes you sad, he makes you cry for many days, and doesn't even pardon you. People suffer for lives altogether because they, they feel these traumas, they feel these sad memories that are kept in their mind, and they become so identified with it. So every teacher tells you to learn these tricks of mind. Let them become aware this is just a memory based on this reactive pattern that is happening. So the next time when you feel something, next time when you encounter something, you don't leave this automatic process of sensation, perception, reaction happening. You bring in the consciousness. You say, well, I'm the decision maker. I'll, you can't be so sure that I will always say yes. 
I have all the freedom and I will take this freedom to think about this, contemplate about all the aspects, then I will make the decision whether this is good for me, this is bad for me, or whether I should feel bad about it, whether I should feel victimized about it, or whether I should let it go. Buddha says, try and understand this, the way the mind works. Try and grow your inner roots and understanding life. And out of this, develop your own art of living. Develop your own principles of life. Buddha gave five precepts, eight precepts, ten precepts, 227 precepts for monks, 311 precepts for nuns. How joyful. That just shows Buddha's compassion, how careful he was, how special he thought the nuns were. That's the way I like to look at it. But these were not the guides that will take you. He did not promise this will take you to enlightenment. It would have been so much easier, especially in Asia, if Buddha just said, follow these things, they will take you to enlightenment. Oh, everybody would become Buddhist right away. Because they have been learning about this spirituality for so many years, and they know how complex, how challenging it is. And if somebody comes and says, well, five steps or 12-step path, you will reach there, Everybody would do it immediately because they are scared of all the complexity of religion. But Buddha did not say that. He gave these teachings because this will create harmony in society, they will create peace, this is a peaceful way of living, and personally, they will save you from a lot of pain, suffering, trauma, and this is a skillful way to live for yourself. But what I would like to advise you today, request you today, is that Please think about what we talked about today. And if you find if it is really true, if it really works in this way, each of us, we should make our own, we should uh, design our own art of living. Because no one knows your unique situations you are going through. We might tell you something, it may not work on you. Because so many things depend on where you live, what kind of situations you face. So the best idea is to think about these things, think about the nature of life, and most important thing you have to understand is that you have to face everything around you, within you, yourself. Not even a friend can help. Even if they wanted to, they cannot experience that particular experience you are going through. So each of you have to develop your own art of living, your own way of life, your own inner philosophy. How you face these things, how you tackle these things is so important. Being a monk looks very easy that we have 227 rules, we can manage our life based on this. Very often, one of the best lessons I learned is that, oh, how many times it does not really work. It doesn't work at all. And there are no tools how I can handle myself. And then in those moments I learned very valuable lessons. That these are means to help us practice, but you have to understand that the thing you are dealing with is your mind. And that mind is constantly with you. So you should constantly be watchful for it. And it, it helped me a lot. So today I would advise you with that. And please don't worry. I'll try to talk a little bit about death. But don't be scared of it. Because in Buddhism we say, even if we live for one hour, even just a day, but if we live it mindfully, it's worth a thousand years. And uh, I'm getting towards the end of today's talk. But I would like to tell you a small story. We love to tell stories in our country. In fact, I was talking with my Dharma mother and my kind guardian here. 
couple of days ago talking about this. I also feel a little bit excitement sometimes, a little bit, um, what would we say, nervousness when I have to go for a talk or something. So what I said was that back in our country, I give teachings, and it's very different. People don't ask what topic you're going to talk about, nothing. They don't even come and say, well, teach me something. We have a beautiful word for it, we call it satsang. Very difficult to translate in this modern language. It can mean something like coming and sitting together. Communion, just coming, gathering, being there, just being presence, and you share something. So much freedom. And more so, when they come, they will sit there and they, they will have nice exchange of greetings, etc. And then sometimes they will just ask questions. Or they will tell you, oh, please tell me a story. Give me something. It's so beautiful, so spontaneous to see that down-to-earth reaction from people. And we don't teach like this discussion. When a teacher starts discussing like that, they will say, what is wrong with him? What is happening? Has somebody made him angry today? They will wait until the moment we start telling stories. Because we always teach only three stories. And people remember it for generations in this way. So coming from that tradition, I have to honor my tradition. I have to tell you a small story before we complete the talk today evening. So the story comes from a very famous city from India, known as Varanasi. In its glory days, it used to be the New York of India. With little bit of distinctions, marijuana being legal, everywhere. That was the joy of Varanasi city. It was totally legalized substance. In fact, it was the way to greet people. Oh, here I have a drink, here I have this and that. Because it was not considered an escape from the pain and suffering you feel. That's why it was never abused. People did, even now it is, people in the villages in India, marijuana grows everywhere. I was so shocked when I came to learn about how it's seen here, because in our nunnery, marijuana just grows everywhere. So I showed it to a couple of friends who were visiting and they were shocked, they could not believe it, they were taking pictures. <laughs> it just grows everywhere. I shouldn't probably talk about it here and tell we grow marijuana in the nunnery, <laughs> but it grows. So in India, that city known as Varanasi was very popular and was sort of like one of the first earliest mega city we can find. Huge population from even then since most time, Buddha even recalls, even in his past lives, visiting that city, being a king of that city sometimes, etc., being born there as an elephant keeper. And in this Varanasi city, a lot of different kind of people come. Very rich business people, retired kings, estate rulers, etc. They also come and make palaces by this beautiful river known as Ganges. And they spend their um, retired days there. Business people, they come. And it was, and still nowadays, it's one of the most business-oriented community. A lot of exchange of goods happened there. And in those days, because it was connected with the, one of the most largest river in India, Ganges, it was a trading port. People used to travel here and there. So all different kind of people, people from all walks of life, they were there. And in that city, it's also known as the city of spirituality. A lot of spiritual teaching practitioners were there. And in that city, there lived a very old fisherman. And he learned a lot about spirituality, and he was very devoted to the god, Brahma. 
So he's a principal. Every day he woke up in the morning, took his net, the fishing net, went and sat near the Ganges, and threw his fishing net in the river just once. And whatever he caught, and luckily he caught some things always, whatever he caught, he was contented with it. He says, I'm happy with it. I don't worry. And he would sell and make his day, make his living. And his teachers had probably taught him that if you live in this contented way of life, you do not desire too many things, then God, Brahma, will be pleased with you one day and he will bless with all the fortunes of life. And it sounds very funny, it sounds like a childish promise, but it still happens in India. Still people are taught in this way. She was a very humble fellow. And he lived for many years in that city. In fact, he grew old in that very city, living in such a way, waiting for this promise that one day the Lord Brahma will arise out of the Ganges and bless him. Oh, okay, now you have done all, all your practice. Go and enjoy the, the luxuries of Varanasi city. I will bless you with all the wealth. And he waited and waited, and it never happened. And he thought for a few years, maybe the God is testing my patience. Better tricky business. So he thought, maybe God is really testing my patience. Maybe he will eventually give me the boon that he's just trying me out. And he knew he's growing old. Even if he has a lot of money, there are many things he cannot go, cannot do, even with a lot of money. But he waited and waited. One day he became very old, very old. And one day he rose up from the bed. He picked up his net just like every day, every other day. And he started thinking about it. He says, I have grown 85-year-old, doing this every day, living a contented life. And these teachers teach me that if you live a very content life, if you do not desire too many things, God will be pleased with you and will offer you things. Where is this God? Why hasn't he done anything to me? Oh, I'm so frustrated now. This is enough is enough. I may die someday. What is this all about? And he felt very sad, very dejected. He was walking, very angry, shouting at God even early in the morning and he had no idea he has gotten up quite a long time before. It was still just about two o'clock in the night. But out in rays he did not even bother to check and in India don't, nobody wears watch. So he didn't really know and he, cursing God and being grumpy and angry he was walking down the road and spitting everywhere out in the, in the rays. In he was walking and suddenly his foot hit a small pouch a cloth bag with some pebbles in it. So he said, what is it? And he picked it up. It was a small cloth bag filled with some pebbles, rocks. And he picked it up. And still he didn't bother to check about it. And it was a little dark, so he didn't really check. But he was so angry about God. He didn't even want to divert his mind and explore what it was. And just he started cursing and cursing. And he went, walked down to Ganges and sat there. And I said, well, where is the sun? When the sun's rays start showing on the, on the river, then the fish come up. So he wanted to throw the net. That was his practice. And he waited, oh, there is no sun now. And he became even angrier. He said, look at the God. Now he's playing tricks with me. He's even delaying the morning sunshine. So he became very grumpy. While waiting for the sun to rise, he picked up one rock from the pouch and threw it in the water. And he made the sound. Look. And he was, oh, okay. And as we often do when we're grumpy, these kind of things. And he kept throwing it, enjoying the noise coming and still cursing God, cursing his teachers, everyone around him. He spent about two, three hours. 
and he had picked up the last rock and he was about to throw in the in the Ganges river at the very time very moment the sun rose and the rays of the sun they hit the water and they reflected and they reflected through the piece of rock he was holding and this rock was a piece of diamond very valuable diamond and it shined forth and in this golden rays he saw what is it for a moment he was mesmerized and he realized and looked in the river and he says, oh, I have thrown around maybe 70 pieces of them. This is the last piece I have. And Ganges is such a deep river, it runs very strongly. And he started crying, he started crying what he has done. I still say he was still very lucky he had the last piece of rock left in his hand. This story is for every one of us. In our culture, we are told that this is the story of life. Everyone is given a bag of rocks. If we see them in darkness, we don't realize how valuable they are. We'll throw them and play with them just like a pebble, throwing in the pond, throwing in the river. But yet, if we perceive them, they are diamonds. So 80 pieces of pebbles in his bag, they represent the years we are given. Some people live for 60 years, 70 years, 50 years, 30 years, 80 years. Those are rocks of our life. Even if we live just for 10 years, 20 years more, we have 20 diamonds in our hand. We can make use of that. So let's be wise. Let's realize this precious life we have. Let's realize this golden moment we have. In our language, we call life a secondary of, um, word for life. We in the spiritual community when we talk, we say it's the door of ultimate possibilities. It's a portal where you can, you can open any door you want to go. You want to go to heavens, you open your own door. All the keys are given to you. So let's use every piece of rock remaining in our life. And let's not be the grumpy fisherman cursing all our days gone and waiting and all that. In fact, every year we are given as a blessing from the nature. As a good fortune we have, it all depends on us, how we realize, how we become aware of it, and utilize this golden age. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.